You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Darcy White, an exceptional guest and real estate investor out of Ontario region. Please help me welcome our guest. How are you, Darcy? I'm good. I'm good. Um, this might be the greatest real estate show, but I'm not sure if I'm an exceptional guest or the greatest guest. I'm a modest guest, maybe. Pretty good. I hope I'm a pretty good guest. How about that? I'll be your pretty good guest for an hour and a half, folks. 90 minutes. I hope you have a long drive. I'm going to talk 100%. <laughs> so thanks, good, good. thanks so much for being with us today and I appreciate you yeah. taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm curious about anybody in this business. So if you can, if I can learn something from you, that'd be fantastic. That will be the goal. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with uh, your more than 35 experience. What was the beginning for you on the business, on the multifamily business? Okay. Um, you know, I've had a lot of careers, and as, as Adam says, I'm really old. I'm going to be 60 <laughs> this fall. Uh, he told me, he said, you're like 35 years older than me. I'm only 38. So, yeah, yeah. Come on, man, that's inflation already. <laughs> I'm only 59, folks. But um, I got into this business because my father-in-law was in development. My father-in-law immigrated from Holland in the 1950s um, and built in northern BC uh, malls, strip malls, back in, when there were things were inflating in the... BC economy was growing and all these uh, mega projects, mines and mills and, and dams and stuff. And he built commercial strip malls and he had the uh, misfortune of getting old and uh, having a couple of health complications. And I was, uh, after a couple of careers as, you know, different things and, and uh, as a pastor, as a musician, as a working for a stevedoring company, that's shipping. And I was teaching school in Scarborough. I was in the uh, Toronto District School Board. I was teaching grade twos and threes at General Career Elementary School up at Birch Mountain Lawrence. And I came home for uh, a summer vacation to see the in-laws and family. And we had a, a child at that time, our first child. And uh, my father-in-law, I had a, a modest, tiny investment in one of his properties. And I just asked because he'd had two strokes in the last eight months and he was recovering from them. I said, hey, you know, um, dad by then we had been married uh, nine years and i was able to call him dad which is weird but i did I said, dad yeah, it is it is right if you're, <laughs> if you're married when do you start calling your father-in-law never exactly, exactly. <laughs> and he's a scary guy i so, always tell him uncle yeah okay maximum <laughs> uncle <laughs> that's as close as he can get so you know the problem like you're asking a really personal question like uh you've had a couple of heart attacks and a stroke and um who's going to take care of things and I have five brothers-in-law. My wife is, a, is the only daughter of a man with six children and five brothers-in-law. They're all smart. They're all brilliant and accomplished and, and really capable people. Yeah. Um, and I said, which one of those is going to take care of things? And he paused and he said, uh, I don't think any. Okay. And then he says, yeah. yeah, then he says, I was kind of thinking maybe you might. I thought, are you serious? I didn't even think he liked me. I wasn't certain of that. Yeah. Um, it was unclear. And that he respected me was beyond even comprehension. Mm. So I thought about that. And I talked to my wife and I said, do you think he was serious? And she says, oh, my dad never jokes about that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, which was intriguing because I loved teaching. Uh, is so great. I was teaching the full curriculum. I got to teach math and phys ed and music. And I loved it. I loved my career. Loved my kids. And I was seeing some success as a, as a teacher. And I was 
um, an early childhood and literacy expert, not expert, but taking training to be that and working on my master's of education. And this was a, a dramatic left turn. But if you remember the 90s in Ontario, Ernie Eves and the, uh, the progressive conservative government at that time was fomenting a crisis in education. And in five years, they'd had two strikes. They changed their curriculum a couple of times, and it was front and center on, news, on newspaper articles. As much as real estate leads in the Toronto Star, hmm. it was education. And everyone was angry. And it was a constant fight. And I've been on the picket line twice you know, and when I was riding the TTC coming home, people were giving me like dirty eyes because they, it was clear I was a teacher. I had like marking and crap in my arms as I was trying to ride home. And people are like staring at me like, you jerk, you're, you know, so I was feeling tiny sensitive about that and been through all of that. And I, and I was already aiming at, you know, um, leadership and um, when was that? Basically? This is in 98, 99. So there's, I think, a strike okay. in 96 and 98. Okay. So I was teaching then, and I was already aiming at, interested in school administration and sort of the bigger picture of, of education and schooling and stuff. Hmm. I thought, if I'm ever going to go out of the classroom, if I'm ever going to get advanced, and remember, folks, that my wage at that time was 36480 hmm. plus benefits. That's not a huge wage for a third-year teacher with working on a master's degree. It's not like I was getting rich. So it was kind of alluring when he said, listen, how would you like to control your own time? Uh, take vacations other than two weeks at Christmas, um, spring break and summer, you could pick your time in the year. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe take over my business. And what do you think about this? And I thought about it. And I had a really great year of teaching. But at the end of the year, I went, you know what, I might do that. There'd be reasons to move home. My wife was pregnant again, we had another daughter. I decided, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I'll take a shot. So during the during the next year, I uh, worked on my real estate course for BC pre licensing real estate course for property management. And took care of his properties. Started in August of 2000, um, managing his properties. And the first thing I did was learn the balance sheet, trying to figure out how the money works. Go visit the properties and look at, you know, things were kind of run down and broken. He wasn't a particular, he's a great man, smart. I love him. He wasn't a particularly diligent manager. Everything was broken. Leases were extended and unsigned running month to month, partly because of his illness and partly because it just worked. He didn't have to worry about it. I mean, you can run a business kind of shabbily and still make money if you're lucky. And he was lucky. So the first thing I went to do is what I do. I start tidying things up, cleaning things up, blocking things down. And I'm a, I'm a good, diligent clerk. I've had experience being a clerk and I'm good at that. I can keep lots of projects going and tidy things up and lock it down. So I cleaned up his business and in about four years, we had it back functional and organized and fixed up the tax parts of it. But the deal I struck with my father-in-law was I would be paid what a third year teacher would be paid, no more. And if I mm -hmm. learned any more money than that number, he'd take it off what he paid me, which is a negative incentive to learn any, to earn anything. Mm -hmm. It was a bad deal. And this is worse. <laughs> I'm a terrible negotiator because I, I negotiated with a, with a yes. Okay. Without even figuring out when he asked me what I was getting paid, I told him net without, without benefits. Oh, okay. So I locked into a net wage without benefits for life. It was a terrible deal. <laughs> Awful, awful deal. So we were for a long starving. time, I think. Pardon? Not for a long time. Yeah, for a really long time, nine years. We Whoa. didn't adjust it for nine years. There's no inflation rate on there. He said, what I'll do, though, is I'll show you how to make money in real estate and how to have your own portfolio. So I'm all right with that. I'm a very long-term future kind of guy. And I like equity. And I, you know, my wife and I live fairly simply. But we did have two kids that had to have food. Yeah. 
So it was a bit of a stretch, but I started, you know, buying pre-sale condos and, and, um, uh, apartments in Langley. I noticed that the vacancy rate was falling precipitously in Langley and the, um, houses were, uh, uh, condos were cheap. They were not selling. It was kind of a mini, um, in, um, deflation out here in 2003, four and five. Hmm. And it's hard to imagine in Vancouver, but that was the case. Things were not selling. They're sitting listing for 180 days. I noticed a bunch of, uh, condos and stuff were sitting more than 180 days had price adjustments and I was able to buy some condos for under $100,000 and rent them for $850 and $900 a month. Hmm. So with strata fees and insurance, and that is net positive about $135 a month on each of them, so long as I was always full. Hmm. So I hustled, kept them full, and within three years, uh, they doubled and tripled in value, and I sold them, cleaned off my mortgage. Um, and then it, that's when I started looking around for where am I going to deploy this money outside of managing my father-in-law stuff. And I honestly, you know, people say, why Windsor? And this is the first time I'll mention Windsor is I was chasing cap rates. Mm. I, you know, having lived in Toronto and gone to U of T and lived in Ontario, I was comfortable with Ontario cities. And if you have a mostly Ontario listener base, if you haven't been out West, Windsor is a city of 285,000. It'd be a third largest city in BC. Bigger than Kelowna, bigger yeah. than Langley. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's Vancouver, Victoria, and then third largest is Kelowna. And it's not a 280 yet. Yeah. Then there's Prince George at 102. Yeah. I mean, Kamloops, 70,000. These are our big cities. Nanaimo, barely 60. So when you look at a city of 285, it's your 10th largest city and no one in Ontario likes it and quote, calls it a Gino town, (laughs) which is a, uh, a racial epithet against uh, Italians. Um, I'm interested because that's a big city from where I come from. I grew up in a town of 2,500 people, 289,000 people is a lot. So I thought, this is good. Boardwalk was there. Main Street was there in a small way. Timber Creek was there. They had picked over the sort of the best properties. There's a bunch of local landlords and private owners and stuff. And there's a mishmash of things. And when we looked at it, we thought you can buy 16, 18, 20 caps. Um, that meant you're buying. That's crazy. Three. Yeah. Where, 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 when was that? 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13. Wow. Nobody wanted to buy their banks. Would, wouldn't even touch us. The big five wouldn't touch us. I went to such venerable institutions as like Desjardins and okay. all the second and third tier lenders, the agriculture lenders, the Mississauga Croatian bank of money, you know, those kind of lenders. Yeah. Uh, the unions and yeah. Nope. Anybody. Yeah. Second, third, fourth, fifth tier lenders. Yeah. Um, but we found really good deals, but we were buying tons of vacancies and substantially broken properties. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's where we started. And we started with a 14, 17 unit apartment mixed in Walkerville, which is the old Walkerville Hiram Walker uh, um, housing that he uh, built for his uh, workers. And there was a Walkerville, I think, is besides the uh, university, correct? No, it's on the other side. Um, oh, okay. West, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The west side was Sandwich Town, and the west side is uh, the University of Windsor side. The east side is sort of more upscale, but come on. It's just, these are just neighborhoods. They're all micro neighborhoods, but it had seen gentrification in the eighties and some of the uh, um, uh, semi-detached had been gentrified and cleaned up. And there were some beautiful big houses like Paul Martin family had a giant mansion in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at giant mansions like, Oh, this is crazy. In 2010, a Vancouver condo, like a 1400 square foot Vancouver condo was probably $700,000. 
and I could have bought a 4,000 square foot Tudor mansion with a separate garage on a 12,000 square foot lot in Windsor yeah. for way less than that. You just They're mentioned 560. Zionet was like around $20,000. Yeah, we bought suites at 18,000 and 22 and 24,000 a suite. Now, remember, these are broken. They had raccoons living in them, some of them. Yeah, Screens yeah. and doors were missing. It was wretched. And people shouldn't live in these suites. And they were adjacent to occupied suites that you had ones that, honestly, I'm not exaggerating, raccoons were living in, coming and going. <laughs> it was gross. Yeah. Um, we got it, you know, uh, I was chasing cap rates and I was looked at, I also looked at Thunder Bay. I looked at uh, Saskatoon, Regina, Winnipeg. I'm willing to go anywhere, but BC wasn't a good deal. BC yeah, was still expensive yeah. and Toronto was expensive. Montreal was cheap. Well, the whole Maritimes were super cheap, mm-hmm. but it was always, I looked at, you know, every flight to the Maritimes was one day plus, and I would say a day plus. So to get there took more than a day to get there and a day to come home is brutal for travel. I just thought I'm going to not do that. And my French is terrible. <laughs> so I wasn't going to Quebec because I knew I'd get just screwed over by contractors, not understanding what they're saying. So Southern Ontario made really good sense to me. I like London, Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo. Everyone knows these are great towns. Uh, Sarnia, uh, great working towns. Uh, you know, what, what's not to love? But Sarnia was not uh, famous back to this time, I think. Windsor was the main. Windsor and London, I think. Yeah, I think so. Oh, everyone loved K- uh, Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo. That was way yeah. better. Or Guelph. Oh, sweet. Mississauga. <laughs> um, you know, anywhere. Yeah. Ottawa. Anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere. Like GTA. Sarnia. Sarnia and Windsor were pretty much near the bottom. You, know, yeah. you could go worse. You could go to like Sudbury. Sorry for all your listeners in Sudbury. I've been there three times. I love it. I've been yeah. out on your lake and a houseboat. Get no one can afford berries. now even Sudbury. No. Yeah, it's crazy. Everything is expensive. So our thinking was, our thinking was that, you know, if you can buy these for eighteen dollars or $25,000 a suite and you can rent them at $800 a month, that's perfect. That, that's got to work. That's, that's $9,600 gross, $9, gross per year against a purchase price that's only three times more than that. Yeah, even you if you fix them up. The cap rate was 18%. That's yeah. That's yeah, mean that you have a huge cash flow every month. Yeah. So you're like a yeah, price earning ratio, you go four to one. Like four for the cost and one to the price or one to four, whatever way you want to run that ratio. Yeah. We said, you can't lose. These things should cash flow if you fix them up. Mm-hmm. Even in a depressed market, say they close Chrysler, say they strip out all the GM and the transmission plant, which happened. Mm-hmm. Say they shut down these these um, uh, these mills and uh, car dealerships. The extruded plastics and all the uh, parts for the cars are still made there even if the cars aren't. And you, know, you still have a, a really beautiful community that's warmer than Toronto, that's cheaper. It's a retirement community on the U.S. border with four major sports teams right across the border. WestJet flies direct from Calgary. I mean, the university was growing. All of our pre-research said this community should do much better than it currently is doing. But everyone local said, it's awful. Why would you buy a house? It's just like saying all of the market from the Milton was there. Uh, The population... Uh, projects already is a border with with Detroit. Yeah, the only the problem bridge. I think the 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 job job growth was not uh, that the best on this time, but yeah. the other fundamental was great. Yeah, exactly. even yeah, even the new bridge, the new bridge, uh, the new the replacement for the Ambassador Bridge at that time was a, was a concept, and they were talking about it. The impediments were at 
or at the international level because you're bridging two countries, yeah. um, how this was going to happen. But there was a lot of will that it was going to happen at some point. Hmm. Uh, Ambassador Bridge was in, you know, really old and in poor shape and it was a monopoly. And it, I think it frustrated MPs and congressmen on both sides of the border. They just didn't want to see this continue. Hmm. So we thought, well, you know, even if their projections of half those jobs are real and half the money is real, that should really help these communities. And, you know, the greenhouse growing industry and the agriculture industry was growing and booming. Uh, at that time, there was a massive solar industry that's dissipated over time, but that's too bad. There's other reasons we thought, even as just a cash flow project, this makes sense for us. We can pay off these relatively modest uh, things. Like, so we bought a 48 unit apartment building mm. on two and a half acres on the east side, well set back, well treed in poor shape for $1.7 million. 48 units. 42. Oh, okay. That's yeah. 35,000. Yeah. And we put solar panels on the roof. We got a contract okay. with, uh, with uh, Hydro One. We mm. renovated this. And in the end, we sold it for six and a half million. So we did all right. Um, so you bought with 18 and you sold in six, almost yeah. triple. Yeah. Uh, more than triple. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We did all right. And we took our money out within the first three years. We got all our money out through refinancing. So we were playing with house money after 2015. We were all playing with house money. It was a, hmm. um, and then you're able to do some really good things when you approach it through cash flows. You can start adding amenities and and uh, improving your your product year over year or hand over fist. We improve those products um, consistently every year. Didn't you know? Um, we weren't cheap with fixing things. We fixed them all. Just kept fixing. So it was constantly fixing. Hmm. But um, yeah, I'm really. You know, I'm grateful for my partners that supported this vision. Uh, I'd have to say that's Bill Chorney, Fred Rivers, and my brother, Don White. Mm. And we had a lot of help from our uh, custodial manager. We're awesome. Uh, we used uh, Motor City Community Credit Union, Fabio Cheska at um, Motor City. He was an early believer in us. And, you know, the credit unions don't give the best rate, mm. but that's not the only consideration. If someone believes in you, we'll extend credit and terms and... Um, you know, your banking is not based solely on rate. I know everyone's freaking out right now about interest rates and I'm trying to lock in a, a project right now for refinance. And I'm anxious about that too, like everyone else, but banks do a lot of other things too. They, they um, find ways to solve problems. And you know, I have to say, uh, Fabio was amazing in his team at Motor City. We had, we had a really good uh, run with those guys. They financed, I think cool. six of our projects. So you started uh, with debt partners and then you switched to equity partners. From the beginning? Uh, we did both. Uh, the, the very first deal was with my brother and his, my sister-in-law and my wife. Mm -hmm. It was just all cash. We bought the whole thing right out. Mm -hmm. I mean, we bought a 17-unit apartment for $434,000. It's not saying. Yeah. It was a mess, though. We had to renovate every single suite. And we started with four 40-yard dumpsters of garbage. The, <laughs> the land was covered with garbage, old furniture. It was gross, disgusting. Um, so we did that one, refinance, got our money back out. Then we bought the 48 and we took on some partners there that were straight up partners. Um, you're a 20% partner. You're putting up 20% of the money. And we had to come in cash heavy because, you know, an 18 cap is that number because you got vacancies and you got an underperforming building. So, so the NOI was a low and you had to come up with more money. Yeah. We put in almost 50% initially. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. So it was a, it was a steep pitch. Everyone put 200,000 in. So we brought in two, uh, just over a million dollars to buy for 1.7. And we provided a quarter of a million dollars in capital costs or capital to renovate the property and to hold it in case, you know, because right then we had 35% vacancy. 
it was not covering its property yeah, tax yeah. insurance or even the 50% mortgage. By the way, I see now some, some products with, with private money uh, that you don't care about the vacancy rate. Wow. I always care about vacancy rates. I, I you know, honestly, <laughs> I check go with 65. Is, yeah. is he go with 65 LTV? But yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. But it's, it's, it's not, but again, uh, it came up with price. So yeah. interest rate is going to be higher. Yeah. So, I just yeah. can't afford to waste that, squander that money. But that is true. You, yeah, you'll trade, you'll trade uh, uh, leverage for the equity, more, equity yeah. uh, versus uh, interest rate for short term until you fix it. Uh, the same mentality of fix and flip. Yeah. But yeah. you're doing it as a forced appreciation within 18 months to refinance its expenses. But, uh, it, it is good for newbies if you don't yeah. have the ability to 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 have this mindset of uh, raising capital it's going to be yeah. helpful but uh, not in the long run yeah no this that you know that's an important consideration because i've always been really really conservative so you know we're in around six, we're in that project i think with our capital hmm. stack we're probably in around just over 60% loan to value so low ratio hmm. we had to fix the building first and then we fixed that ratio and um, with a more comfortable, I think 75 or 78% mm -hmm. and extracted most of our cash in the th in three years. It was slower than I would like, but I was doing it from distance. I mm -hmm. flew to Windsor 11 times a year for mm. 10 years, 188 oh. trips. I made so 88 from trips. from Saskatchewan, I think you're, you live in Saskatchewan. No, I'm in, Van in BC, just outside NBC. of Vancouver, wow. in the valley. So, so I would get trip. up at, yeah, I would get up at three in the morning, drive to <laughs> yeah. the airport, Catch a 6 a.m. flight to Toronto and then another four o'clock flight to Windsor. Monday night, I'd stay till late Friday night, fly home, keep kind of follow the sun across the country and get home at midnight Friday night. 11 times later, a month, uh, 11 times a year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I always make sure I'm there for Christmas, take everyone out for Christmas dinner and treat everyone well. But yeah, okay. Yeah, but it was hard from distance. So it took a little longer. There was some quote slippage because hmm. you can't see exactly what's going on. Hmm. You got good people working, but sometimes you misinterpret what they're talking about. And, mm. you know, if you're not there solving a problem in real time, it adds days, it adds hours, it just slows down. Mm. We thought we could do it in a year. It ended up taking closer to three to get everything completely tidied away. Mm. But, you know, we run into what many of probably your listeners do. You can do one or two projects out of the equity in your house or out of close friends and family. But we ran into, now there's a really great opportunity to buy a 69 unit apartment building in downtown Windsor on Park Street, but we're gonna need another 1.8 million. And it's got 40% vacancy and it's five stories and it's brick and mortar and it needs substantial renovation. All those suites, like mo almost every one of them had to be renovated. So what's the cab rates right now? That was, we think that was probably close to 20, 18 to 20. Okay. It had uh, only, and it had 34 quote tenants on the rent roll. So half, 50% full. And when we actually took it over, the bank had been taking care of it for five months. When we actually took it over, about 12 were paying rent. The rest mm -hmm. were just on the rent roll. They lived there. They just didn't pay rent. So it was worse than that. Um, but, you know, that took another two years to sort out and fix. And, you know, we had... Uh, Cash for keys or answers in? Um, well, no. Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, in one case, we did. We had some guy, young guys that were just partying all the time and... I went to him and said, here, here's Kajiji. Look at this. You can rent out in Sandwichville, a four-bedroom house for $600 a month. And listen, if you charge your buddies here 200 each, you're living for free. You're not even using your check to 
to pay for rent, you can get a guy like me off your back. He said, and if you move today, my guys will load up their trucks and take your stuff over there. Mm-hmm. And I can actually give you a referen- rental reference that says you pay your rent on time. Now, I'm not going to tell anyone that they spent the rest of the month partying. But uh, <laughs> I said, I can give you that. And I held up my hand, you know, shake hands with them. And you do that. That's amazing. You stick yeah. your hand out. Even in COVID, people will take your hand. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we made a deal right there. Yeah, my guys yeah. stopped working on drywall, went straight up to his room, start loading their trucks with his stuff. Mm-hmm. It was done. So we did one of those. Um, the other ones, you know, I'm pretty persuasive. Some, you know, one of the things we noticed, this is, and this is kind of crazy. I always, I thought we would be welcomed when we bought a property. So I would throw, as soon as you buy a property, I'd introduce myself. I'd throw a pizza party, no liquor. So soft drinks and pizza, hmm. introduce them and say, here's my plan. And I'd lay it out. I'm going to do this and this, I'm going to replace these, you know, and I'm going to talk about security and safety. I'm going to fix the astragals on your doors and the lighting in your parking lot, the lighting in your vestibules and outside. There's some trip hazards. We see we're going to report your concrete steps. We're going to, you know, fix the, this low spots and pull out your drains. We're going to renovate all the common areas and hallways. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to fix the security issues and I'm going to put cameras everywhere. Hmm. Mm. Um, we get people, yeah. yeah, we get people moving right away. Yeah. Um, yeah. You almost don't have to. And it would hurt my feelings is that all I'm doing is fixing your place. I'm making it better. Why are you giving me notice? Because I already got 40% vacancy. I don't need 50% vacancy. It's hard to get insurance on a project like that. Mm. Before the insurance companies didn't ask, didn't care. But in the last few years, you have more than market vacancies. You might not get insurance. So if you take on a project that's got 20% vacancy, that's a great opportunity. It may be uninsurable. They don't think there's enough people there watching the property and taking care of it. Because you've got vacant spaces like an empty house. You can't insure an empty house. Mm. Same problem. But then back in the day, you certainly could. And I didn't want more vacancies. And these people would move out and it would hurt my feelings. And I'd ask them why. And they, they wouldn't say, my suspicion now. Yeah, my suspicion now is... <laughs> The only thing that I asked for them, like, I'm going to do all this work for you, but I have one thing, two things, really. You have to live quietly with your neighbors. You can't Mm -hmm. be a jerk and be yelling and screaming in the halls and causing a problem. Mm -hmm. You have to live respectfully with your neighbors and you have to pay your rent on time. In Ontario, I know that means by the fifth, I'm good with that. But by the fifth, I need all 100% in my hands. That's my only rule. After that, you get a notice and then we start the proceedings. It's just, you don't get to eat a lunch at uh, Eastside Mario's and walk out without paying. You don't buy groceries at uh, Sobeys without paying. You don't get to live here without paying. Uh, so many people self-selected out. They're gone. This is a problem in Ontario, I think. Yeah, I think the so. Rent, the rent control is killing the business. That's why um, we're going to move to this question, basically, which yeah. is how many, uh, how many uh, units under management now in which market? So we had... Around 300 in Ontario, and I think currently I have two other companies. One's a family business that I was referring to my father with my father-in-law. So we have a, a 75 apart, uh, apartment units in that, plus some strip malls and an office park. Okay. And then the other company where we're actually growing, the West Red Partners with my brother and my sister, we have 45 units in Saskatoon, so two small buildings there. Mm. I'd love to grow that but we have to build our, you know, critical mass there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Edmonton, we have, you should know this, but, you know, it sounds arrogant, but if you buy a lot of buildings, it's just hard to remember what your numbers <laughs> are. 
Saskatchewan and Ontario and and Edmonton, Alberta. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then in some in BC and the other company. But in Alberta and Saskatchewan, we have uh, 163, 266. So 266 units between mm -hmm. Saskatchewan and Edmonton. And that's in. So almost 530 Seven. units between Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So a little bit. So, yeah, it's a lot of work. And we self manage. So um, myself and my sister are the property managers. Uh, we run on generally on-site managers. So your classic super custodial superintendent that lives in the building or close to it might manage two buildings for us, in some cases three, but they live adjacent or very close. And they attend to all the sort of first, first responses. Um, rent collection, although increasingly that is digital, it's just sent. Um, but the, a lot of the high touch things, all the cleaning, sand salt shoveling some of that's contracted out but very little um so you're not hiring companies. any property management companies nope. okay. don't do that no we don't do even that. was uh was the long distance management we tried that and it did not work out um hmm. i'm i'm a very controlling person everyone in my office will be laughing about this um <laughs> they're laughing right now um I, but I only like, you I, I, yeah, I like to, yeah i'm certainly the only entrepreneur out there that's very controlling and wants to be involved in everything i'm joking um, i'm sure that all of you adam are must be the same and everyone else is yeah listening. yeah 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 but my only problem was approach not to approach uh, my worry is especially that i'm moving to the states and we, we have already portfolios there is is not achievable to make it work with long yeah. distance but it's a trade and based on your experience it didn't work out it didn't work it did, out it yeah. didn't um you know, this is, uh, there are good property management companies and there's others that are average and I need better than average responses. Mm. I mean, if you get big, you're going to become average. It's really hard to be exceptional if you're big. So if you hire a big firm, by just by definition, you're going to end up being average because you will set what is average in your market. So I need better than, I need better than average response returns. I promise that to my investors. I promise better than average um, mm. uh, service to my residents. Um, and I expect that from everyone that works with me. So if you're on my team, it's because you're pretty exceptional. You just, so, you just won't survive otherwise. So back to this part, what is your criteria for the property management? Because usually what I do is uh, for building with 50 units, at least you need one person full time. Yep. Besides the property management plus the trades. So what is your criteria bare 50 doors? Um, 50 doors means you can really, you can support a onsite custodial manager. You can actually give up one of those suites is partial compensation. Hmm. You can pay them, uh, based on, we use the BC grid. It's one of the only provinces that has a required, uh, wage, uh, under fair, uh, fair work practices. So we use that as our, our baseline for employing our, uh, custodial managers. Hmm. Um, and that person will be doing cleaning. Um, move-ins, move-outs, inspections, serving notices, um, collection of rents. They'll meet my contractors. Um, if they're handy, I can put them to work with some additional work that's in, in addition to their wage. Um, but their, their wage, their core wage is those custodial manager roles. If they're handy, they can do painting and drywall and renovations and change out taps and fix toilets and unplug things. I do require them at least uh, to take the first shot at 
fixing a problem. If a drawer glide is off or a closet door hanger is not working or a toilet's plugged or a levers come uncoupled on a toilet, uh, tap is leaking, most of my managers can fix those sorts of things. And I pay them a market wage for doing that work. Mm. Uh, we employ licensed contractors for plumbing, electrical, and mechanical um, for our drywalling and renovations and flooring, carpeting, construction work. Uh, we apply uh, carpenters or handymen. Um, some of our team are good at those things and they can get extra work doing this. That's what's happening in Edmonton. Once you, and that's what happened in Windsor. We had three guys that were pretty much full-time in Windsor doing suite rentals. When you have 300 units, mm-hmm. even a 10% turnover, which is low, means that you've got 30 units that turn over in a year and every one of them is going to need something. New mm-hmm. countertop, someone burnt the countertop. Uh, someone broke a closet door, needs repainting, touch-up drywall, bathroom retiling. The, you know, people, bathrooms are notorious. They're, they're weak spots in every suite and under sink, kitchen sinks. Those are always spots mm-hmm. that take damage and after everybody moves out you go back in there and go okay cabinet base looks like they had a couple leaks that they didn't tell us about and the cabinet space is wet and rotting let's take it out redo the uh the uh, tile in the bathroom so 50 50 units will definitely support an on-site in our metric and that means they're making a modest wage base wage somewhere in the 35 36 38,000 a year uh plus they'll be making they'll be doing work uh, additional work landscaping other projects we never rest our properties we are constantly improving them we have a healthy uh, repair and maintenance budget and we use it every year and a capital budget we do it fix them up because a big portion of our project is repositioning them and an equity increase and you won't gain equity if you don't improve that property 100%, so yeah, yeah. so what is your target market uh, uh, criteria um, right now especially is that you just moved, I think, to Alberta recently, mm-hmm. yeah. the last couple of years. So regarding looking for, um, first of all, what is your um, quick method to do underwriting without actually um, looking on the Making an analysis? Offer, yeah, yeah. Like what okay. is that napkin analysis? Yeah, uh, we actually, you see, can you see it on my camera? Yeah, right all of there napkins on my credenza? There's two frame <laughs> napkins that are business plans. Yeah. I'm, I'm honest. I'm honest. I went to uh, Earl's with my friend, Fred, my right. realtor at the time, and we worked out a business plan on a napkin. We formalized it in a law, law office uh, after another meeting in a coffee shop, but the original one was on the napkin. Yeah. Um, so I framed it. Um, but we, we, we've worked up a little bit of a grid and it takes me, it's just in an Excel spreadsheet. It has some assumptions in it, underlying assumptions in it, but I want to get to really quickly. Does this thing make cash? Um, and if it doesn't, how far off of CMHC averages are though? So if you have U.S. listeners, Canada Mortgage and Housing Commission is a federal body that both collects data and insures loans. It allows homeowners to get an insured loan or business people to get an insured loan at a preferential rate if they meet a criteria. It's a stimulus from the federal government to help home ownership or business ownership of real estate assets. So I use their research data, which I participate in in every market. I supply that data so they can get as good of accurate data as possible because I want to use it. Every industry professional uses it in Canada. Mm. It provides at least a baseline for us to quickly work against. This is what the market says here. This is how this business is performing based on the pro forma. Do I have any interest? In some, some years, I've done 50 to 100 of those a year. I might be doing five, six, seven a week. In other years... 
we're not buying. I'm looking at them and just going, yeah, no, I'm not interested in Houston, BC. I'm not interested right now in Red Deer. If you send me something from Westlock, Alberta, I'm not interested. Send me Lethbridge, no. Send me Regina, no. So those markets I'm not that interested in. They might be great markets, but it's a matter of focus. But if I get something in my market and I've been talking to those realtors and they're sending me good stuff, I'm going to look at it. I'm going to run it really quickly through. I'm looking at price. I'm not too concerned about price for suite. I know my sister, Darlene, that bothers her. Like she's, she thinks of things in terms of price per suite because, because she's going into that suite with contractors and going, I'm going to rip out. I'm not paying for cabinets. I'm going to rip out of here. I don't want to pay a 109,000 suite for a suite that I'm going to rip out every one of those bathrooms. It should be 99 because I'm going to spend 10 grand in this apartment, replacing every single thing in here before I can rent it. I get her point of view because she has to do the work and it's, it's a matter of her focus, but in mine, I'm not as interested in the price per suite, but I am interested in if there's a a possible potential return if we restore this property to functionality, aesthetics, it's attractive, it's safe, and it's comfortable, and we can market it in the market. So you focus more on cash and cash and and turn the rate of return. Yeah. So my brother Don and I worked up an Excel spreadsheet. I think we're at version V12 right now. So (laughs) we've adjusted it. And we keep adjusting it. And Don keeps adding more complexity because that's the way he thinks. So he's going to turn a document that I need to be a five-minute document. He'll turn it into like a 35-minute document if I let him. I have to stop him and rein him in. Because it's more he goes to down be more conservative, home. I think. It's, it's more like I think with the time, you want to be more conservative approach to be mm-hmm. more sure about your returns. Yes. Don is far more uh, conservative and nuanced. He's thinking of all the different ways, but he's also thinking of ways that you could make this work. But for me, it's primary, primary um, uh, appeal is that I can be fast. I can get back to a realtor quickly if we're interested and put together an offer. But here's a, here's a the qualifying thing. Anybody that's been in this business a while knows that uh, I'm going to uh, like uh, modify an old uh, saying um, that there's lies there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. So in the, in the continuum of lying, there's lies, there's obvious falsehoods and damn lies, and then there's real estate performance that are far beyond damn lies. They are the least reliable thing that you can possibly get. Um, they're a joke. They're, quote, stabilized, but you don't know what those assumptions of stabilization are. They're a lure to get you to look at this property. Um, some realtors do a better job of it, but if you read the bottom, it says, you know, the information is provided without uh, scrutiny by the client. We cannot take any responsibility for the information contained herein. Buyers at their own beware to verify sizes and dimensions of the rooms, everything else on it. There's, you're not sure if that's true, but at least it's a starting place that I can take five to seven minutes, pump in the price, sweet prices, what they're, um, I need actual property tax, actual insurance. I need their actual utility numbers. I need their rents. I need to know if there's any supplemental parking, uh, laundry. I know what I need to know what they're saying in the last year was for rents. I can work backwards to what we think we can get it in that market because I know my market. Within five minutes, I can find out how bad this thing is performing. And you have to know if a building's for sale, it's because it sucks. Mm. They don't. Nobody sells good buildings. And, it, and if you're looking and you see a building, you go, well, that's way too much money. It's probably because it works. Buildings that are a good deal are because they are sucking and they should be much, they should be selling for much less than they're asking because you're providing this owner that's selling it a lottery ticket to get out of jail. 
Well, that's a mixed metaphor, but generally they suck. So you're going to have to pay to play. And this is a hard one to get over because when you send, attend those seminars and hotel ballrooms and they tell you, you can do no cash deals and all this other, you can, but when you go no cash, you're taking on an enormous amount of risk. And when you take all uh, these performance statements, yeah, when you take, take these things on, you have to realize how much risk is implicit in bad numbers. So that just gives us a starting place. And I use that and I do at least one a week. Uh, some weeks I've done seven to 10 uh, because there's just a high flow of them, but that's what it is. So I use that. I think other people do a very quick version of it. They divide this into that to see if they're interested. It takes me about 10 minutes. And at the end, I have a file that I keep them. Do you look on, on, on the insurance when you're doing the quick version of it? Because the, as you mentioned, all of the actual pamphlets of the insurance is not correct. And even the insurance, two things, to be honest, taxes and insurance is going to be doubled when you get the property. So what is your approach uh, during the quick underwriting, not the due diligence? Well, Ontario uses a five-year average for their taxes. So that's pretty stable and mm-hmm. we'll confirm it in due diligence. So there's, it's, a, it's an easy one to give you an accurate number for that. Insurance, we're insuring 21 buildings in four properties, four provinces. So I got a good idea what insurance should cost. Hmm. And I'm constantly talking to my lenders and they're telling me what insurance should cost. So for instance, First National, they have 15,000 buildings, apartment buildings that they're financing right now. Hmm. So when I talk to Penny Einbinder, she can tell me exactly what the average per suite insurance cost is in their whole portfolio. Hmm. So when she tells me you shouldn't be paying more than 675 for that area, hmm. I can go back to my insurance and say, no one that First National is financing is paying more than 675 a suite. Why are you quoting me eight? And they'll go, oh, I'll have to take a look. Where are those properties? So that helps. I think having relationships and good intel helps. Mm-hmm. So I know that I can put in my numbers. And often, this is another tip. Um, I sound like everyone's grandfather right now. Because um, <laughs> I'm so old. Um, yeah. Often, buildings are chronically underinsured. So if you see a good insurance number, it's probably because they're underinsured. Those can go stale. And some insurance brokers will sell you under under insurance. They'll sell you a $6,000 policy. But a $6,000 policy is like buying a $6,000 car. It's not a good one. It's a cheap one. And it's missing stuff. Um, And one of the things that many, you know, you might cheap out on your insurance and think you got a good deal. But many banks require much better insurance. And for your policy to actually be actionable, there's a co-insurance clause in most Canadian policies. And if your insurance, your stated insurance numbers are not within 90% of the actual appraised value at the time of the loss, the policy is void. You don't just get 90% or 80% or a percentage of that policy, you get zero because it's fraud. So if you have a policy that says your building is only worth 2 million, at the time of the loss, it's worth four, you actually get zero. You don't get 2 million to try and rebuild and raise the rest of the money. You get zero. It's fraud. So many people are missing out on that. When I see a low insurance number, it's a hint to that how the rest of the business might have been running. So it gives me a kind of red flag. Hey, let's check some due diligence on the rest of these things. Um, If someone can be so careless with their insurance, they could be careless in other ways. What else is missing? So I do a quickie on that one. I have lots of data. If I'm doing 10 a week or seven a week or five a week, I'm looking at a lot of properties in that neighborhood. And if I see a 21 unit apartment building that's insurance in Edmonton is 11,500, I think that's about appropriate. 
it's mm-hmm. high, but it's just over $500 a suite. If I see one that's $6,000, that's underinsured. That is mm-hmm. not an accurate number. And I'm going to replace it with 11,500 mm-hmm. as a place marker until I can confirm it with the actuals and due diligence. But for assessing whether it's worthwhile, I'll, I'll use my own numbers where I need to use theirs and get a quick look and see if it's worth it. Most are a no, because what people are selling is usually a bad project. And we take on three bad projects a year and that's our capacity. What's we look for? We are looking for a bad project. Yeah. Those are the ones that went for sale. Which is basically coming to the point of opportunities, which is the ratio between the expenses to the net operation income. What is the magic number for you? 60%, oh boy, 65, like 55% between expenses to net operation income ratio? I like it under 50 um, when our buildings are tweaked, we're 38 to 42, that kind of range when things finally work out. Mm-hmm. So we, you got to fix all your leaks. Some places are a little bit more expensive. Saskatchewan has high water costs. So does Edmonton, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Ontario is relatively cheap considering. High garbage costs in Edmonton. You can't subcontract. You have to use City of Edmonton services. Um, much above 50% and you've got a really expensive building you're running. Uh, mm-hmm. I need it lower than that. If you can get a building with, uh, without, a, without a boiler electrical one you can sometimes get them cheaper as long as they're small but once you start hitting the large commercial rates Hmm. it goes up dramatically um if the tenants are paying for their own heat and you're just applying heat to common areas with the electric that might be a real interesting deal and we're seeing with new construction in vancouver no gas Hmm. after 2025 or 2028 you won't be putting gas into houses it'll be all electric so uh, that tells me the electricity is going to become much more expensive uh, because there's going to be real high demand on it. Um, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So backing to the same issue you just mentioned, which is the trade of equity and leverage versus risk. So mm. from what I understand that you're not in, in, in favor of vendor take back, uh, privacy notes, you are more like equity partner, which is, bringing, yeah, which is bringing us to, the big subject, which is raising capital. Yeah. How long you manage to have your own system to raise capital? Because you are in favor of equity partners, I think. I am. I have done some vendor financing things on short terms. Um, you're married to them or you've taken over existing financing and they have to leave their covenants in place. So it's really tricky. People's trust won't let you out and they won't let you take, take someone else out who they've already got on the hook. Hmm. So you're being added to in a second position. And a lot of vendors don't realize that. They say, well, take over my finance and get me out of this. You can't. So on one property, he signed a 10-year deal with no outs and sold it three years in. He's locked in for seven more years with us. Um, That's a tricky situation. I mean, we're fine. We've never had any problem and he's given it nor given him any reason to, to be concerned, but you are getting married to another party um, and there's stuff that comes with it. Highly leveraged buildings, um, doesn't give you much room to make a mistake and people make mistakes. Stuff happens that are out of your control. Um, I sleep better at night knowing that most of our portfolio is below 60% loan to value. Uh, your, your most vulnerable moment is the moment you buy that building. That's when your highest point of leverage is and every moment thereafter, you're paying down principal, getting to a better, safer spot. Um, I'm very conservative. I could have, you know, I know I've had coaching that I could have grown our portfolio faster, bigger, and and more uh, with some more aggressive moves, taking on more risk and debt. But, you know, with 
to Adam, to your question about raising capital, what did I promise my capital partners? Now, if I, if I promise my capital partners that I take care of their money, I take that seriously. I'm not going to take risks with other people's money. I might with my own, but I'm actually quite conservative with my own money. Um, it's, you know, to, to earn a, and after tax capital is hard. Like how many Canadians have half a million dollars in savings? Not many. How many have 200,000 savings? How many have a hundred thousand? How many have more than 30? I bet it's very few. Mm-hmm. That's hard to get. Wages are not that high. There's a lot of expenses and it's really hard. So to waste someone's after-tax capital or homeowner's equity is a crime. Uh, what's that guy's name? Kevin on the dragon's dens. Um, Kevin, the mean one. I love him. Kevin, <laughs> Ole- Kevin O'Leary? Kevin O'Leary. He yeah. calls it a crime against money. <laughs> okay. I love that. That phrase to waste and squander someone's hard earned capital with risky behavior is a crime against money. And it's breaking faith with your, with your partners. So raising equity is a matter of absolute transparency. So I write quarterly reports and I meet with my um, capital investors, some of which are in my office. They actually see my books and write my books. They post my uh, checks. They see my vacancy rates. Um, and they're friends with others in my investment pool. This is closely held. Um, so that kind of radical, absolute transparency is essential. Now, I don't tell them that I found a mouse in a hallway, um, those kind of granular operational concerns, but anything financial, like where we are exactly at, what our vacancy rates at, what our mortgage process is, how we get compensated, who we're paying, what kind of bills we're paying, um, why our expenses are higher or lower, why our laundry rates are lower than they should be. I report on this. I tell them exactly what's happening. Um, the first thing is you owe people. If you take, accept their money for investment, you owe them radical transparency, in my opinion. Um, you owe them honesty. And honesty is not a continuum. It's an absolute in my thinking. So I'm not mostly honest. I'm not sort of honest. I'm honest. I tell them exactly where we're at. So radical transparency with what we're doing. Um, honesty, absolute honesty with where we're at. Um, and uh, really clear expectations. Before we meet, I've said this a few times and it's frustrated a couple of my uh, investors, but I wanna give them every opportunity to say no. I wanna make sure what I'm saying is clear mm-hmm. and that they have ways to get out. I don't know if any of your listeners, or if, Adam, you've sat through a, um, one of those um, timeshare, hard press uh, sales meetings, or if someone's coming to you over, over to your place with a whiteboard and a, uh, pyramid scheme and they give you a, yeah like for uh, selling these products from your home right yeah this is awful and it's so much pressure i give my investors every opportunity to get out because it is an illiquid uh, investment yeah. once you're in you're tied to me for the duration of this investment cycle and early on i told them we're going to be a buy holding company but i realized that's not realistic that's not and it's actually not right too many things happen in people's lives. You got to put a term on an investment. So I've been telling people, this is a three to five to seven year plan. And at every quarter, I look at it. And every year I look at it and I'll get back to you. And I'm looking for the optimal time for us to, um, to end this relationship, that there is an end date to it, to it's not a marriage. Like people make that mistake that we're married to each other. We're tied to each other in an investment um, project but it's not a marriage and it has an exit. It's not ugly like a divorce. It's not like a death. 
it's not like anything. Like that. It's a good, well-considered end to a business relationship when you met your objectives. So I make very clear what our objectives are and mm-hmm. what those timelines might look like. And I report continuously on those timelines and keep them appraised to it. So we always can't talk about where we're at now, where we think we are in the cycle, what our equity position is, what our obligations are in terms of debt, vacancy rates, what our cash flow situation looks like and what our reserves look like. They get all that information. I keep it in forefront for them. Um, raising capital then becomes a matter of, for me, it's relational. It's eye to eye. It's knee to knee under a coffee table or on a bar stool talking to someone um, and being really clear what we're aiming to do and how I can help them. Um, there's a few no-goes. I don't uh, want to get involved with couples or partners that are not together on this, where one agrees and one doesn't. If I get yeah. a sniff of that, I want to go um, because that's just too much pressure and it's, it's a bad idea. So maybe a bit paternal in that way. I don't want to be involved in that. I don't want to have to convince someone about this category of this, this kind of investment. I'm not there to coerce anyone. It's generally a referral. I've had mostly, yeah, it's been mostly referrals. I'm pretty low key about it. And people contact me and they want to get on a, on a waiting list and a newsletter, a newsletter. And they contact me and they say, I'm interested. And we have a conversation. And I find out why you're interested. I want to make sure there's an alignment of values and goals. Mm. Um, I'm pretty confident that none of my investors are going to show up in the newspaper with a front and a side profile picture with first, middle and last name. And, you know, some crime blotter. I'm pretty certain that's not going to happen, that they're going to bring disrepute to the rest because we're all tied together in this venture. And I don't want to be tied together with criminals. Um, yeah, I mean, they're going to find out for me too. They're never going to see my face in that kind of news. They're never going to see me sued as a landlord for taking a shortcut and renovicting someone, getting mm-hmm. fined for um, uh, a bylaw infraction. Um, they're going to know and sleep every night knowing that my boilers certificates are up to date, my business license are up to date, my membership in the Chamber of Commerce is up to date, all our bills are paid. We've never been in court. Um, not including rent court, because in Ontario, I know the RTA is rental court. We have been there, but honestly, I went and added up because someone asked, I I get this at cocktail parties and this goes to integrity. So my investors, my limited partners can know that uh, I'm not that kind of guy that throws people out on the street. We take every effort to keep people housed. We've only been and if we're talking like 500 rental units over 22 years of business, I've been in rent court in Ontario less than 30 times. That's, and that is the majority of that is me initiating an action against someone who's more than two to three months in arrears. Mm-hmm. It can before that there, my managers talk to them. I've met with them. I've shared an aged vendor list with them that shows them their rent payments that they made it in case they made a mistake. And they thought that, they had paid and they hadn't. I can show them the exact dates that we gave them receipts when rents were received. And I go over that with them beforehand to make sure there's no misunderstanding. Mm. This is what we've got. You show me different from rent receipts because I give you rent receipts. Now show me different. Okay. So we agreed on what is actually owing. So let's clarify that. Let's reason together, right? That's what the psalmist said. Come, let us reason together. Mm. So we sit down with people and solve problems. I want to keep people housed. A good business is based on good customer service. That's on me. I want to keep people housed. So we've done that. We've worked out a rental payment plan. If they're willing, say, listen, I know you're behind. 
you're a student. You haven't got your student loan. We had tons of students in Ontario that got their money at four months chunks. We worked with them. Some, mm-hmm. some would go three months, but we know them. We know these guys and they're going to pay. Um, we work with them. So if we've gone through that, we're only ended up in court after we've clarified what they owed, chatted with them, worked out a payment schedule. Communication, basically. Yeah. You have to, have to say, be a good communicator with, with exactly. not only your business partners, but with your yeah. clients and your, your uh, tenants. It's number one. Yeah. It's number one. And that's, and that's about a relationship and you can't maintain a relationship with lubricant is good conversation and communication. So that makes it easy to raise money for me. Now, easy is relative. We raise about a million dollars per pull. We're buying $4 million buildings. We raise about 30% of that. So it's a little over a million dollars per purchase. That sounds like a lot of money. It is to me. I take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm grateful for the support of our investment partners um, that have, partnered with us. I think we've given a good return and good, a good investment experience. And there's more to it than just how much checks we wrote. Um, it's being part of, we think being part of maintaining housing for people, making them safe and secure and healthy. Um, I think our buildings are remarkable and our staff does a really great job keeping people housed and safe. So when I talk to my partners, there's a big part of sharing what my custodial managers are doing, mm-hmm. how they're keeping people housed, how we're solving problems. I think they're proud to be associated with us. Um, that makes raising money not anxious. I am anxious every time, but it does make it a lot easier if you know you're doing good work and you're proud of it. It's not hard to tell people what you're doing. So that's how we do it. It's pretty low key. I have a wait list and I've vetted people on it by meeting with them. In COVID, that's been tricky. It's been Zoom calls like this. Pause, yeah. But usually I meet with them and I want to meet with both of them if there's a partnership involved and I want to make sure there's alignment of values. And expectations, like we've turned people down that are desperate. They want to put their last $30,000 into a Hail Mary to save their life. I, I can't have that under pressure on our project. 100%. I need to make the best decisions for the tenants to meet statute requirements. And for their investment group, I can't make decisions based because you don't have any money and you're scared of being destroyed. That's too much pressure. You make bad decisions when you're under that kind of pressure. 100%. I think uh, the story is not done, but we're running out of time. I'm so sorry. But I told you to no, talk no, a long we, time. <laughs> no, but we need to have a part two because I still have some question about uh, this. And before we uh, conclude, uh, how the people can follow your success? Oh, um, our, our current working stuff is on Westred hmm. or, or Rent West. Sorry, rentwest.ca. That's where our apartments are in Edmonton. Uh, we can, you can lease from us. Yeah. Test yeah. us if you want. They're a little plug for sales. Um, but I've been writing. I started my own personal website. I, I, I do a podcast with a couple of Ontario guys. Um, I think uh, Glenn. Yeah, Glenn Sutherland, uh, Canadian <laughs> investing in the U.S. and the mindful yeah. investor, investor yeah. uh, Oriel and Bolin. Yeah, Oriel. And the three of us have been doing a podcast. It's mostly about leadership uh, from my perspective, being a good human, housing people, how, do you, how we did this business and stuff. And we've been doing that on um, uh, every uh, Tuesday. Yeah, the advanced real estate investing talk. It's available on all yeah. the platforms. So out of that, those guys encouraged me to have I'm coming over. Okay. <laughs> and they can reach me on uh, www.darcywhite.ca and I'm blogging some of my ideas there yeah. uh, where I'm thinking about leadership and faith and values and housing and equity and how to house people. Old man thoughts. If you want to come listen to my old it's man. It's not old man. <laughs> Okay, thanks a lot for your time today. And again, we're going to need to have part two 
to talk about more about uh, your strategies and multifamily across Canada. And uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time to be one of our exceptional guests so far. Oh, Adam, I'm, I'm a modest guest, but I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks a lot. Cool stuff. Thanks Thank so you. Much.